From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I think my my, uh, microphone was in my beard. Oh, Um, (laughs) that would do it. Clean shaven privilege is is real. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and I'm joined this week by Vox Policy reporter Jerusalem Dempsis. Hello there. And ProPublica's Dara Lind. Hello, Jerusalem. Welcome back from across the pond. Yeah, great times. Glad to be back in America. Well, now that we're back in America, we're going to be talking about a tax provision that only exists in America so far as I am aware. And I've tried to find other countries that do this. None of them do. Uh, and it is the, <laughs> the state and local tax deduction or SALT. So this is a provision of the federal income tax code that as we're recording this is causing some of the fiercest fights uh, between Democrats within Congress. And it raises a lot of interesting questions about how to tax the rich, about the relationship between red and blue states, and about just how bad exactly the state of New Jersey is. Um, (laughs) I love New Jersey. I lived in Newark, but still, come on. But before we get into New Jersey and its, its, uh, its many failures, some background. Until 2017, the federal income tax had an unlimited deduction for state and local taxes. So people could deduct all their property taxes and either their income or their sales taxes from their federal tax bill. Then, to partially pay for the Trump tax cuts, Republicans put a $10,000 cap on this deduction. So for the vast majority of Americans, this didn't affect anything because most people pay a lot less than $10,000 a year in state and local taxes. But for upper middle class and, and affluent people in high tax states like New York and New Jersey, this was a big deal. And... They felt like this was like a coordinated attack on liberal rich people in blue states because the deduction was less important in more conservative, lower tax states like Texas or Florida. So a group of House Democrats from affluent suburban districts, which includes both moderates like Josh Gottheimer and progressive favorites like Katie Porter, have been pushing to get rid of the cap on state and local tax deductions entirely. Just get rid of the cap, go back to the way it was before. The problem is that this would be a massive, massive tax cut on the rich. Millionaires would get over $48,000 a year on average, whereas the average middle class person making $50,000 to $75,000 a year would get a tax cut of $10. 
So it's $10 for the middle class, $48,000 a year for millionaires. And that looks bad for Democrats, <laughs> including the provision would make Democrats' whole spending bill, uh, in spite of all the other tax hikes in there, uh, a net tax cut on the rich. It would also be the single most expensive part of the bill. So put this another way, Democrats would be spending more on tax cuts for rich people than on pre-K or on the child tax credit or on health care. So now we have this kind of fascinating fight in Congress where this unlikely coalition of people from Bernie Sanders to Joe Manchin to Mitt Romney are all opposed to doing this. They all oppose what they consider this big tax cut for rich people. Whereas Democrats, including some more liberal Democrats in high tax states, are pushing really hard for it. So as of this recording, it looks like the likeliest outcome here is some kind of deal that partially brings back the deduction or raises the cap. And I can walk through what that would look like in a second. But right now, uh, when I look at my notes, it just says Jerusalem rant about how angry this makes me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're going to get into some of the like specific arguments people are making around um, why there should be a SALT deduction. But the first most frustrating thing about this entire enterprise is how many Democrats who are in favor of repealing the cap are using like equity-based arguments in their arguments in favor of doing so. I mean, Josh Gottheimer calls the SALT cap, quote, a direct assault on hardworking men and women of labor. Um, facetiously, I suppose, Jamie Raskin, who's a, who's a congressman from Maryland, said, we've got to have a SALT march like Gandhi did, which, <laughs> of course, is a reference to the fact that Gandhi led tens of thousands of Indians um, against uh, British oppression and uh, the SALT uh, tax that they had in uh, India, which was when British colonialists refused to let Indians uh, sell or <laughs> or collect salt that was uh, uh, offshore. I'm sorry, that's the best argument against cancel culture being a thing I've ever heard. In my yeah. Life. Like if even, <laughs> if even Democratic elected officials feel that it's okay to just like funny colonialism joke. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, this is like not the only ones. I mean, Katie Porter, who, you know, I, you know, I agree with on, on a lot of things, who's a progressive darling, has somehow uh, made it her mission to create progressive justifications for this. She was on Pod Save America, convincing people that this was somehow a progressive venture. Now, if, if they want to say that they're upset about how the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act went, that they think it was an attack on liberal states, which there was some discourse around that time, which indicates that might be what's happening, that's fine. But you know, just to put even more stats on it than Dylan did, um, this is according to Brookings and Urban Institute's Tax Policy Center. 96% of benefits of SALT cap repeal go to the top 20%. 57% go to the top 1%. 25% go to the top 0.1%. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, that Trump passed, which is what everyone railed against during the 2020 elections, um, which everyone was like, this is just tax cuts for billionaires and for rich people. They looked into it and found that salt cap repeal would be more regressive than this tax cut bill that Trump passed that everyone was really against. There is not a progressive justification for this. And I think that it's actually quite like harmful that we keep hearing. I mean, I think Democrats try to find these sorts of equity based arguments to just basically say they want to give money to people who vote for them. And if they want to do that, like people do that who are politicians, like I understand that they can't just come out and say that. And there are other arguments that we're going to talk about later that are um, some better ones and some worse ones that they have used. But I, I just think that like it's just a foregrounding here. When we're talking about federal policy, especially ones where there are only a few swings at the bat the Democrats really have, 
What people are saying when they want to give $475 billion to rich people through this sort of tax cut is that they think that is more important than anything else that could possibly be done right now or potentially for the next 10 years under a Democratic trifecta. So that's kind of like foregrounding this entire conversation. Democrats did kind of bake themselves into a corner here because the context in which SALT deduction was removed from the tax code in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is actually very different from the context in which it's being, you know, like they're considering reinstating it, right? Like the SALT deduction was the only thing in the 2017 tax bill that limited tax cuts for the rich, right? Like everything else was like regressive tax cuts at the top of the income distribution. This was the one thing. And so the argument that like Donald Trump and Republicans included this because they wanted to like own the libs is not I mean, you certainly don't have to like even make a decision on that to note that um, Republicans didn't have the like negative pressure in lobbying against it from state legislatures, from local like luminaries, the Democrats, you know, the Democrats did. So in that context, it makes sense that Democrats were really out of the gate, you know, when this was being discussed and passed saying this is particularly, like, it's not just that this is generally regressive, it's that it's regressive and mean. Um, And it's mean to us personally. Uh, And so we're going to try to fix it. But, you know, because as Jerusalem is saying, and I think this can't be overstated enough, because of the way that Congress works right now, when you only get a few chances to pass legislation, and it turns into like, this massive, massive, end of anchorman free-for-all in which every democratic (laughs) policy priority is trying to make it into the same bill, all of a sudden that isn't money that otherwise could be raised by raising tax cuts on the rich. It's money that otherwise would be spent on benefits. And so all of a sudden this is turning into something that like, you know, it's, it, you can't promise the same pot of money five different ways. And so this is running into, and you know, not just that it's like taking away, but that as Dylan and Jerusalem have emphasized it's taking away more money than other things would cost. But you can't understand why the context in which Democratic elected officials in particular have been thinking about this hasn't been that it's going to take money away from universal, you know, paid leave. Yeah, I think the the core point that that when Trump is trying to own the libs, one cannot blame the libs for feeling owned. <laughs> I think is important. We need to we need to honor their lived experience. <laughs> yeah, their their lived experience. Um, yeah, I, and like sure enough, when I talk to family members or, or people I, I love who are mad about this, like they feel owned. <laughs> like it's it it feels like they're being punished for living where they live and and having being in the community they're a part of, and people really don't like being insulted. But, okay, at the same time though, I do kind of want to like contradict my myself by pointing out that like. If you think of the SALT deduction as I shouldn't have to pay taxes on the same income twice, then it makes a certain amount of sense. Mm. But if you think about it as like, that money isn't mine anymore, that money went to the state and local governments, it shouldn't count as my income. That's just the same logic that anti-tax politics always uses, that like, it is either your money or the government's money, and it's a zero-sum game. Well, and it's it's the same argument that you hear against dividend and and capital gains taxes because sort of people arguing against capital gains taxes will point out, you know, I, I earned this money with my wages and then I bought a stock and then I sold it and now you're taxing me on my money again. I mean, to to use a very uncontroversial example, uh, you don't get to deduct your social security payroll taxes from your federal income taxes. They're just like additional taxes layered on top of each other, and like you could argue that's double taxation, I guess. 
but like as long as it doesn't add up to more than a hundred, um, it just <laughs> seems like there are two different taxes that exist alongside each other. So I don't find that defense particularly compelling. But let me back up and 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 lay out a couple of defenses that I think like make some sense to try to steel man the best case for for assault I I can. Um, and I I'm not a assault defender. Um, I I don't agree with these cases personally, but but I think they're worth laying out just so people have a, a sense of the the debate. So one is is a concern about like rich people moving. So I think this is part of why people like Andrew Cuomo, uh, may he rest in cancellation, uh, were so mad about the the salt cap when it initially was implemented. That if you're uh, you're the governor of a state like Connecticut or New York or California that has a population of extremely rich but highly mobile people, and you have dramatically higher like 13, 14 percent higher state tax rates on those people than states like Texas or Florida do already. It's not unreasonable to worry that that a big federal hit that hits them only if they continue to not move and, and will fail to hit them if they move to a red state. It's reasonable to worry that that's going to cause some of them to move. Now, I think like empirically, there's not a lot of evidence that happens very much. Um, there's a, a sociologist named Cristobal Young who's done some of the best work I've seen on sort of what what makes rich people move in response to tax policy. You see some of it, but like ultimately the reason people live in California is that it's California and it's beautiful. And the, the reason people live in New York City is that it's New York City and it has everything. And that has remained true even during the pandemic as like there definitely have been a couple of rounds of trend stories about like, oh, all the Californians are moving to Texas now. All the Californians are moving to Florida now. Like, no, they're staying in California, even though they're working from home. And like, yeah, like Elon Musk, I think, might be serious about moving to, to Austin full time. And like he's rich enough that that might actually matter for for California's budget accounting. But yeah, it's it's like the things that draw people to these these rich blue states are are sort of bigger than than tax policy stuff. And rich people seem surprisingly insensitive to that in, in practice. I also think that part of that, too, is just like where they're going to go. Like I, I, like I grew up in Maryland. So like there's always this dichotomy with Maryland and Virginia with people living in the D.C. metropolitan area. And there was like some more reasonable concerns there, because if you raise taxes in Maryland, you can just kind of like hop the border and it hasn't really changed your life. But like if you live in New York City and you're going to move to Connecticut or New Jersey, these are also blue high tax states. There's not really something you can where you can still get the same amenities you're used to. And in California, of course, same thing. So I, I do think that that's definitely overstated. And it's also like the valence has totally flipped. Like normally when when people argue about rich people moving between states, it's in the context of like some Democratic governor wants to raise taxes on rich people and moderate Democrats or Republicans are arguing against the tax increase and are like, look, all these people are going to move. And now it's being brought up by sort of Democrats worried that, that rich people are going to move to argue against a, a federal income tax increase. And it's being defended by Republicans <laughs> like, no, 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 it's fine. <laughs> so I, I don't find that super persuasive. The other case that I wanted to bring up, there's a guy named uh, Daniel Hemmel, who's a, a law professor at UChicago, generally smart guy who I uh, has sort of a very eclectic range of interests. But he had a, a sort of defense of salt that I thought was was clever if if it doesn't take you very far. But I think it connects to to some of the high minded defenses that you hear people in Congress bring up. And his argument is just, you know, salt is a subsidy for states to pay for the things that states want to pay for because it, it makes it cheaper for states to tax rich people. And so what do states pay for? States mostly pay for sort of education programs, K-12, uh, their state universities. 
and for healthcare through Medicaid. And so the SALT deduction, while on first order might look like it's it's this big tax break for rich people, is actually kind of the opposite of like a, a cigarette tax or an alcohol tax. That those are those are taxing things that have these negative externalities that hurt other people. This is taxing something that has a positive. Uh, this is subsidizing something like state taxes that has a positive externality for other people, like funding education programs, funding healthcare programs. And so I think the nutshell version of the argument is this is a way to subsidize things we want to subsidize at the state and local level. Now, Dan Hemmel does not support what's being proposed right now for SALT. I have talked to him about this. It makes him very angry. And I think like when he's comparing spending $200, $300 billion on raising the SALT cap versus funding a child tax credit, like it's not a question. The latter seems like a better use of money. And, And I think that gets into sort of the the question that his defense raises, which is, is spending the subsidy on stuff that the states can do a better choice if you have a fixed pot of money than just subsidizing those things of the federal government, just paying for healthcare, just paying for education, or these things that you're trying to sort of indirectly pay for? Right. I mean, I think that, like, just to kind of spell out, like, the implication of what you're saying, like, obviously, state tax levels are not written in stone, even though states have an obligation to balance the budget. And so, like, the logic there is that instead of moving to a lower tax state, like the rich people of New York and New Jersey would lobby their respective state governments to cut taxes and would therefore end up with like less disparity in terms of the services being provided in blue and red states. But I also think broadly, too, it's this question of like how like people keep trying to figure out these back end ways to deal with policy prescriptions that they have, like doing policy through the tax system is always dumb. Like if you want to, instead of giving the veterans who itemize a tax break, you should just give money to veterans who need help because they, you know, they need money, they need help. And you think they need money. And I remember I was in Virginia and you're always like voting on these like ballot propositions and there would be extremely convoluted things where it's just like, oh, like, do you think the firefighters who like fought during 9-11 to like protect people deserve like 10% off on like this tax rebate they already get it's just like i think that you should help them i think that you should stop asking me whether they should get a tax loophole um that some of them can't even claim because again the majority of people do not itemize their taxes because it's very complicated so you're already cutting out most of the people that you'd want to help anyway but i also think that like what's weird here is there's this underlying complaint right that like blue states and cities are like super expensive and that we need to make sure that we can still be doing the things that we think make blue states and cities good and like you hear Democrats who are defending um, repealing the salt cap say things like, we pay our teachers, we pay for all this stuff. Like, why don't we want people to be doing that? So like the implication being that the reason why blue states and cities are expensive is because we're not allowing people to deduct their state and local taxes from their federal tax bill. Like, that's not what's going on here. I mean, I've ranted repeatedly on this podcast about like the major reason why blue states and cities are unaffordable is because blue states and cities are refusing to build enough housing to reduce the cost of housing in these places. And that's also true of other things. Like the reason why education is expensive has nothing to do with our ability to deduct state and local tax deductions. And I think it's like a really weird um, argument that's even being allowed to be taken seriously. If people have a problem, they should try and solve that problem. And our repeated insistence that we try to fix that through a tax code is actually making the problem worse, not alleviating any pain for the very people we care about. Well, and I think to to your specific point on, on some of the high cost of living in places like New Jersey, New York, California being about zoning, artificially limiting the, the amount of housing that driving up rents and so on, like, that plays very directly into SALT in that in most places, the most significant state and local tax you're deducting are property taxes. 
And I think that's especially true in New Jersey, where the average property tax is something like over 2% of the property's value, which is incredibly high. Um, it's true in New Hampshire, where I grew up, where there isn't a, a state sales or income tax. There's just a, a massive property tax. And so the property tax is on assessed value, and assessed value is based on sort of what people will pay for the land and the building. And that is sort of dependent on zoning and on how much housing people are allowing to be built. Like the salt deduction, I don't think is super useful in like Humboldt County and, and super northern California, which based on my very limited experience there seems to mostly be like small towns and pot farms. They don't have like a, a San Francisco style housing crisis. You and had a fun so, vacation, didn't you, Dylan? <laughs> You know, um, but, but it's only when you get to sort of places with really high property values and really sort of hefty assessments that you get hefty property tax bills, which lead to to hefty salt deductions, uh, which play into this. And and so, yeah, I, I think there's there's very specifically something happening about exclusionary zoning in the suburbs, um, sort of restrictive zoning in cities and nimbyism in cities. Um, that is playing very directly into the salt politics we're seeing. It's not an accident that a lot of the the New Jersey representatives who are most vocal on this are from like Bergen County and other suburban counties near New York City. And I'll add too that this one of the big things. So Katie Porter, when she was on Pod Save America talking about this, um, one of the arguments she makes is, uh, and she said specifically, like you know, you're a Californian, a million dollar house in many of our communities is not a fancy house and not a very big one. Now, I understand the point that she's making, that housing costs are unaffordable in California and have skyrocketed, but the average price of a home in California is hundreds of thousands of dollars less than a million dollars. I think it's around like $700,000 right now. So it really goes to show who it is that we're talking about here when we're talking about the people who are quote unquote harmed by this policy. But another argument that she makes is this um, idea that I think it sounds very reasonable to people is that, you know, one of the principles of tax policy is that you should only be taxed on income after you've paid for necessary expenditures. That's why we have kind of like the standard deduction. And uh, she says, quote, government should tax you on what you have left after mandatory expenses that include state and local taxes. So I want to highlight here very clearly what the implication here is. A, the implication is that you are now you are forced to live in California and not somewhere else, not that you get to live in California and enjoy all the amenities that come with it, especially when the very people who get to live in California are making it impossible for anyone else to live in California. But also I want to add here that not only is it just like living in California in particular, but also living in a giant house in California. Like the people that we're talking about can opt to living into smaller homes, to renting, not having to pay insane property taxes. These are things available to them. And I'm not saying that that's like, you know, an optimal policy uh, prescription. But if you're trying to attack the specific issue of housing unaffordability, which is what we're talking about when we're talking about these property tax deductions, that's not, you don't do that by giving rich people a way to make it cheaper for them to own a home in a really high cost state while also doing all the work to make sure that no one else can live there or make housing less uh, uh, more affordable. And I will say that when I looked uh, at many of the proponents of this, including Katie Porter and Josh Gottheimer and Swozy and other people, I do not see them on any of their public communications. And I may have missed something, but I haven't seen anything <laughs> about housing affordability increasing, uh, uh, reducing restrictive zoning laws. I haven't seen anything from Katie Porter about SB 9 or SB 10, which are major bills in California um, that would reduce um, the cost of housing. I mean, this is ridiculous to me to like act like this is the where we're actually tackling the core problem here. But I mean, again, like if we're, we can have a more political conversation perhaps at this point, which is just like they are doing something 
something which very clearly they feel is in their political interest. I think I saw a poll in New Jersey that that quite a substantial majority of people support salt cap repeal. I also think that if you look at, you know, polls that say, do you think that we should lower tax on wealthy people? People are really very opposed to that. So it's hard to see how that all shakes out. But this feels like we should stop pretending this is a policy conversation. This is a political one. And maybe we should we should talk more about that. But yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, the thing about the politics is that they're also not unambiguous, right? Because especially right now, like, we didn't have a, like, Weeds 2021 election postmortem because off-year elections are, like, they're the small sample size. They're the, like, early season games of politics. But you know, it's obviously true that some segments of the kind of democratic professional class are engaging in a very explicit conversation right now about like, are we limiting our, you know, constituencies too much by focusing on the concerns of like upwardly mobile urban dwellers? (laughs) And so, you know, to, to, on a certain kind of like, symbolic, but also who feels, who goes to the polls feeling that you've done something for them level to focus on repealing the salt cap instead of like, I don't know, everything else they're talking about in this bill is a certain admission that like the constituency service they need to do is primarily to people who are going to benefit from tax cuts, not from services. The argument on the other side of that is that, you know, there is always going to be a difference between your donor class and your like voter class. And that if the concern Democrats have is that they're not going to be able to they're not going to be able to deliver things that their, you know, most well-heeled donors want in terms of, I don't know, making real like legislative commitments on climate change, that this is something that they can give them and say, look, don't say we never did anything for you. Yeah. Well, and I, I think the political motivation here, I think, is really crucial for someone like Nancy Pelosi that a she represents uh, like central San Francisco and and a lot of her constituents like live in painted ladies and and other extremely expensive houses and are probably implicated by this. But also like there's just a ton of seats in affluent suburbs. And those were sort of the heavily concentrated among the seats that flipped in 2018. So someone like like Katie Porter, she represents Irvine, I think around Irvine um, in Orange County. That was a seat that flipped when when she won it. Uh, Tom Malinowski in in Central Jersey, who is is another 2018 sort of flipper, is very vocal on the salt deduction. And you see some bipartisan buy-in here. Young Kim, who's another sort of suburban California congresswoman who's a Republican, uh, is part of the like bipartisan salt caucus to try to get rid of this cap. It's very particular to the House in that like Wyoming doesn't give a shit about the salt deduction. They don't really have like they have like a massive like mining industry and, and don't really need extensive state taxes. And a Senate seat in Wyoming is worth the same amount as a Senate seat in California. But like the House is like an actually like democratic institution. And and so you have to like win seats where the people live and a decent number of people live in suburbs. And I think there's there is this sense of fear among Democrats that if they don't give this sop to wealthier voters who are likelier to turn out, then the voters, they're going to be helping with stuff like the child tax credit that they're in for a bloodbath next year in the midterms. Now, I think they're probably in for a bloodbath either way, but I think I think that sort of helps put some of their fears in context. 
I would add, though, too, it's like it's not if it was just a purely political calculation, some of the things that were being thrown around were just so excessive. I mean, there was at one point, it's not clear if that's still true, being bandied about the idea of making this repeal um, retroactive, which means that people would just be giving getting money for the past few years where they weren't able to claim this deduction. And there's like no economic reasoning behind this because any of the things that you'd be afraid of happening, like people moving, would have already happened if that was a concern of the last few years. It's just giving tens of thousands of dollars to the very wealthiest people at that point. And I think I'll also say too, is that like one of the arguments that people often bring up, I think Dylan, you mentioned this at the top as something that people often say is that, um, you know, you shouldn't pay more federal taxes based on where you live. Like this is punishing particularly people in um, like New York or California or New Jersey. Um, I mean, there's just more rich people in these places for like much more complicated reasons. And I think that's one thing. And I also would say that it's very odd to me to hear Democrats talking about wanting to tax the rich in the same breath as wanting to make sure that the tax code does not also tax the rich. Like if you had a billionaire's tax, right? Like, is that like a tax on California and New York because those have the most billionaires? Or is it a tax on billionaires and California and New York have really great things going for them that attract rich people to them and they can use that in order to... Um, you know, fund the services that we think are important. And I think I will say too, is like the reasons, and I, I know we mentioned Elon Musk leaving, is like the reason why we see people actually leaving these states is like nothing to, uh, well, Elon Musk in particular, I don't think this is actually a widespread phenomenon. It's much more cultural <laughs> than anything else. I don't think that the reason why Elon Musk leaves is because he can't get his accountant to fund enough loopholes for him to exercise his his, his wealth. So I think that like what's strange about all of this is that there's obviously some political maneuvering going on here. It does feel to me like there's a broader cost, the Democratic caucus, if they're seen as defending um, wealth individuals, while it might be individually rational for some of these people, especially in New Jersey, where it's become such a potent talking point to vote on. But I will say, though, it seems hard for me to see how you are going to defend against attack ads that say you gave tens of thousands of dollars to the top 0.1 percent when we know that that's actually a very, very potent political attack. So we're going to take a quick break now, but but when we come back, we're, we're going to talk a bit about what the SALT fight might mean going forward for, for state economic policy, not just for taxes, but for everything the states are going to be doing. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? 
Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with Wise. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let Wise help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using Wise worldwide. To learn more about how a Wise account could work for you, download the app or visit wise.com. That's wise, W-I-S-E.com, wise.com. And we're back. So I want to take the the defense of the SALT deduction that I mentioned in the last segment sort of pretty seriously. Um, so if SALT is meant to encourage states to spend more on health and education, and it seems like a pretty bad way to do that, how should we be thinking about that problem? And in some ways, this, this strikes me as the biggest question the Democrats and liberals have over the next decade or so. It looks like they're about to lose the House and Senate next year unless something big changes. And after that happens, big policy initiatives will have to happen in the states. And some of that has already happened. So just to go through some stuff and build back better, several mostly blue states already have paid leave programs of various kinds of the kind that the Build Back Better wants to make federal. States are increasingly adopting pre-K programs, especially for four-year-olds. Some states subsidize childcare and community-based services for elderly and disabled people. And New York and California and some other states have passed some really significant climate bills and, and renewable energy requirements. So I guess the, the question I wanted to raise for both of you is, if you're a federal lawmaker and you have a couple years to do anything, maybe like one year almost exactly at this point, before your party likely loses power, how do you encourage states to do more stuff like that? Or should that even be the goal? Should you just be trying to do as much stuff federally as you can before before getting into that? Part of what I'm coming from the perspective of is that the issue with a lot of state action is not a lack of funds. I mean, what we saw over the pandemic is that a lot of state and local coffers were actually replenished, especially places that rely on property taxes. We saw a bunch of, you know, increased property values go up and that helped a lot of people. California ended up with a budget surplus. Uh, and so did some other states that are figuring out how to solve it. So I think that that's one of the things here is that I right now, my perspective on what states need to do, in particular blue states, is not really a question of like how much more funding do they need on these issues, but also just like uh, uh, on governing in particular. I think obviously we've talked quite a bit already about housing, but I mean, on transit, I think this is also incredibly important. Um, the, a lot of the fix that we see coming from experts on how to increase the amount of mass transit we have have less to do with spending and a lot more to do with you know governance and making sure that transit authorities have the most up-to-date ways of actually engaging with the public. Um, we're making sure that we're not allowing a lot of the regulations that exist to actually stand in the way of creating um, high-speed rail or other types of transit or bus rapid transit or just garnering the political will to focus on things like buses and creating congestion pricing or, or bus lanes in particular. Um, a lot of the problems that I see facing blue states and cities are a lot more regulatory and political than they are really financial. Financial, which is why I think often um, most of our conversation isn't focused on that. I do think that it's, you know, like the kind of programs versus governance thing is something that I, I really deserves to be kind of gotten into because it's not like an, it's not obviously just an either or thing. But I also think it's worth kind of pointing out that the 
implicit like federal like should we keep taxes keep federal taxes high so we can keep federal revenues high or should we give some of that money back to the states also does have like geographical equities involved right like we spent the first segment on the unquestioned assumption that everyone living in states with low tax burdens is cool with that low tax low revenue equilibrium like obviously rich people have more ability to choose where they live based on their preferred tax code and more incentive to do so than less well-off people do and it's also just like a fact of like which states have what kind of tax burdens that it's easier for affluent states. It's like super easy for Connecticut to raise money. Connecticut can raise a lot of money without like putting a real dent in Connecticuters' wallets. That is not as true for a lot of the lower tax, lower revenue states. Like, yes, they're taking in less money in taxes, but it would take so much more for them to be able to pull in something comparable. And the way that the federal government, you know, is the existing federal programs to like try to redistribute some of that are more likely to bake in those inequities than they are to really address them. So like, to a certain extent, federalism is kind of a retreat here, right? It is accepting that the best thing that progressives can do in blue states is like make blue states like happier places to live and that the well-being of people in red states is not per se a concern that's because of all the politics of salt like like you've you've already committed to that when you've said that the salt deduction needs to be you know like needs to be uncapped but it's just kind of worth laying out because then you get to turn the conversation to okay unlike the federal government you don't have as much of a political burden of saying well my tax dollars are going to support somebody else you have the ability to say my tax dollars are going to create the kind of government that i want to see Part of why I'm interested in this topic is that I'm, I'm, I think, more sympathetic to, to small F federalism than a lot of left of center people. Um, I think some of that is, is seeing sort of how ambitious some states have gotten on, on particular policy initiatives like California and New York are genuinely funding a lot of climate R&D, have set pretty tough clean energy standards, and they're big enough parts of the U.S. economy that 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 might be worth like a quarter of of passing something for the whole country um and a, and a quarter is a lot better than zero but i think like the bigger philosophical concern i have and sort of interest in federalism i have is is just you know the us seems like a very closely divided society politically that has led to a lot of high stakes confrontations and political crises as no one needs me to to detail and so sort of one thing I've been trying to do kind of absentmindedly, maybe for a piece at some point, I don't know, but is look at like what's happened in societies that have similar divisions and sort of how have them, they've been able to bridge them if they've been able to bridge them. And almost always the answer is some kind of like confederation or, or increased level of federalism. I was going to bring up the example of Bosnia. Bosnia seems to be falling apart like as we record this. Um, but it did it did stay together for about 26 years after an incredibly brutal civil war, in part by like devolving power to Serb and Bosniak communities on a significant number of issues and and keeping the, the country whole. But Bosnia and Herzegovina had were sort of separate political entities that had a lot of individual power. And I I, I think you've seen that also in Northern Ireland, which is another place that's not inherently stable. It's been tested by Brexit, but for over 20 years, they've been able to sort of beat back the troubles through some kind of, of devolution of power and power sharing. And I think in, in that case, there's there's less like 
it's it's less like there's like specific parts of of Northern Ireland that are are ruled by Sinn Fein and specific parts that are run by the Unionists. But I yeah, I have I have sort of a, a broader question about whether the way out of super high stakes federal political confrontations is through trying to devolve more issues to the states and letting states like California and New York try to build social democracy if they can and letting states like Ohio just not. And that's, I think, frustrating to liberals in that you don't want to abandon people living in states that aren't on your side of that. But the alternative seems to be like sort of increasing stress tests of an increasingly dysfunctional federal system. I think I would say that um, I also have kind of this increasing sympathy towards trying to return a lot of our attention towards progress to state level actors, A, because they can get a lot of things done. They're not stimmied by a lot of the same things that are stopping Congress and the presidency from getting things done. And also because people are able to actually move between states very easily uh, in a way that they're not able to. And I would say that for liberals who are concerned about abandoning Ohioans or abandoning people in red states, an easy way to not abandon them is to make it easy for them to move to your state. So I think that like one of the things that's really interesting to me is that the best way that we've seen that we could see federalism work in the future is a not just like, you know, us in this podcast, like, well, I guess we're all in our in our homes, but our, our metaphorical podcast studio talking about it, but also also just like a renewed political attention from the local level on saying, okay, I care about enshrining abortion protections in California. I want that in the uh, California constitution. I'm going to fight to make that the case. I care about, you know, transit high-speed rail happening in California. You know, we have the money in California to do this. Like what are we, what do we need to do to make this actually occur? And that if you want to reduce the pressure, you want to make sure that people outside the state can come to you, you get rid of things like, you know, the occupational licensing that means that like a hairstylist has to like re-enter hair school or whatever in california when they come from montana or you make it explicitly easy for people to get to you through other transit opportunities and also we saw during COVID a lot of the ability for some of these state governors to actually act in kind of regional ways like we saw these regional compacts sort of arise i'm not really sure i haven't heard a lot about them recently but at the very beginning you saw california oregon and washington talking quite a bit about how they were going to work together to combat COVID and have like kind of more similar regulations i mean these sorts of like interest interstate compacts that are voluntary and that allow for states to kind of still have democratic responsiveness from their citizens, but also like act nimbly and in concert with states in, that are in the same geographic region. That's extremely valuable, especially if we're talking about things like transit, which, you know, of course, often it's going to cross state boundaries. So I, I think I have a lot of hope for this as actually a political strategy. If people were actually to turn to it, I think that the concern is just that right now we're kind of in this middle area where like everyone's agreed that like this may be the last potential bill that gets passed by Democratic trifecta in like 10 years. And also no one really pays attention to the states. So states don't have a huge incentive to actually fix the core problems, except for just like trying to get reelected. And I mean, you know, there, we can talk about this more if we want to, but like there's obviously the issue with like these kind of one party states as well, where you have this issue of non-competition um, and you have kind of parties allow for there to be kind of like this, this, this force to get your shit together. But like when you look inside some of these one party rule states, like you see people who likely would be in a Republican party <laughs> if there was a Republican party, but there's like no way for voters to judge. They end up voting for Democrats repeatedly because there's no one else. And then you don't get better governing. So I don't know. I, I you know, I think there are a lot of big questions wrapped up in that. Unquestioning the premise of that, like on the assumption that we are doing this, like, you know, investing at home, build back backyards better then 
I think it's it's worth revisiting the kind of governance question that you raised at the beginning, Jerusalem, because like we often think about revenue on the margin and we often think about government on the margin. And so it's like, oh, what what new programs are we going to do with this money we have coming in? What are we going to change? And that means that there can be less attention, which like is how we got the politics of infrastructure for like 20 years, right? Like this awareness that existing things were being degraded and government wasn't working as well, coupled with a lack of really strong political incentive for anybody to say like, this is going to be the, not just like we're going to throw money at this, but like, this is going to be a governance focus for us. And so, you know, I'm wondering what you folks think about the question of whether blue states are even kind of filling the minimum baseline obligations right now of providing you know, the life that they promise to their citizens. Jerusalem, you've been talking a ton about like how awesome it is to live in California, but it seems like for reasons that are both in Californians control, like, you know, the, <laughs> I mean, I don't need to tell you about like how homelessness is, California, is, is because Californians don't build housing, but like also outside of their control, like the fact that there are massive wildfires every summer now, it does seem like there are things that the government is failing to protect its people from. Yeah, I mean, I think it's useful making a couple of distinctions here. One is I think that blue states, as Dylan mentioned earlier, have gotten really good at demand side policies. They're willing to do a lot to provide the sorts of benefits we'd wish the federal government would provide, whether these sorts of paid leave. I mean, there's pretty good paid leave in California. I think that it has an issue where it doesn't reach everyone, but it is much better than um, what we're seeing in other states and definitely, obviously, the federal government. I mean, you have unemployment benefits. We saw this during the pandemic are much more generous in blue states. Just in general, we're seeing the willingness for Democratic lawmakers in these states and it should be like, go, you know, it should go applauded at this point because it's not something that was considered like very easy to do or anything like that. And and it required a lot of political work to get the coalition to the point where they're willing to kind of engage in that sort of high tax politics in order to get those socially redistributive outcomes. And then, you know, you look on the supply side stuff. I think that's where Democrats are really failing in these places and it's becoming much more important. But I also would add like, there's there's things that they can do and things that they can't do. I think there's also like these massive problems like that are actually sort of break the federal government, like can't be solved on a state by state basis. Like immigration, like you can't have 50 different immigration policies. Like it's not possible. That's the federal government's purview. You can't have like a climate change fix that happens just in Maryland. Like that's not possible. You can't have like universal health care being fixed in one state. We saw Vermont even con- consider this at one point. It doesn't work. So like the problem is really like, you know, there are definitely like a lot that can be done. I mean, I think there's a ton that could happen to make life like insanely, maybe even 10x better in places like California and New York and New Jersey, et cetera. But these big problems that also motivate voters quite frequently to to the polls cannot be solved at the state level. And I think that that's also something that should be you know appreciated. Yeah, I, I kind of disagree that that many of these problems can't be solved. So like, I agree that climate change cannot be solved by New York. It also can't be solved by the United States. <laughs> and, the, and it's a global problem. It involves sort of global committed changes to to emissions. And I think we rightly, when people make that argument about the United States, say, you know, but there's like stuff we can do. We we have some share of emissions and we should try to roll it back. Um, and I think the same logic kind of applies for states like New York and California. And I think it's also important insofar as some of those states' programming is research and development. That's kind of like a global public good. Like if if California funds a bunch of research into fusion power and someone finally figures out how to do fusion energy, like that's really good for Bangladesh. Um, that that has like large global implications. And I think on the single payer story, 
I kind of interpret differently. So to be sure, there are complications with doing single payer at a state level involving coordination with like Medicare, federal programs of various kinds. I think the ultimate issue was just that like they could have done it. Um, I grew up very close to Vermont. I, I still read local news about the area. And so it was like following what was happening when Peter Shumlin was trying to, to pass single payer pretty closely. They had a funding plan. It was like a 9% payroll tax and then 11% income tax or, or maybe vice versa. I think what ultimately happened wasn't that it wouldn't be viable. What happened was that people didn't want their taxes to go up by 20%. And like, no, they don't have their own currency, but neither do Finland or or some any number of other sort of EU members that that have devolved control of their currency who managed to run single payer systems on their own. I think the difference is that they have a have public opinion that's very open to very, very aggressive taxation. And I think partly because as Jerusalem has been laying out, like blue states are just really are not like great at spending money and will blow lots of money on sort of cost overruns for highway and, and transit projects. And like they're not very good stewards of the tax money they take in. Their voters, even in super liberal states like Vermont, are just like not willing to to swallow the kind of tax increases required for some sort of liberal dream programs. And I think that's illustrative, but I don't think it's I don't think the lesson I take from that is states can't do this. The lesson I take is like voters don't want states to do this. I think I would say two things here. One is that like I think you sort of hinted to this, like, you know, blue states cannot borrow in the way that the federal yeah. government can. You know, they do run the risk of being downgraded, their credit being downgraded and like having other obligations. They cannot just print money uh, on their own or even just spend it and, and borrow indefinitely in the way the federal government in the United States can. And I think I would also say, secondly, like that there's like the political problem is self-reinforcing from the governance issue, right? Like people, I, I know, I mean, I was talking to a lot of transit agencies, people who work in transit agencies about why it's so difficult for them to build uh, new systems, they talk often about how when people say, like, every time you try to build something, it's messed up. So they reduce their trust and faith in transit authorities, which then reduces the ability for transit authorities to act quickly and make hard decisions and therefore reduce costs and, and time. You know, then that means that you get a worse output to begin with. And then, of course, it's, that's a self-reinforcing cycle here. And so, like, I mean, I'm not sure about whether a small state like Vermont could actually, I mean, do this with and lower costs when it doesn't have as many people in its insurer pool. I see it's conceivably possible that they could if they were willing to stomach the high taxes. But again, I think that, uh, you know, Finland and other and other Scandinavian states were able to do this pre being part of the European Union, which I think is also important. That's fair. We're going to take one more break, having having solved federalism, um, and then we're going to we're going to talk about some new research about covid and domestic violence. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. 
Real Traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So this week's paper is by economists Amalia Miller, Melissa Spencer, and Carmet Siegel, and it's about what happened to domestic violence in the U.S. during the initial COVID shutdowns back in March and April 2020. So there was a lot of worry at the start of the lockdowns that with families stuck inside and with victimized partners not able to escape to work or to see friends as easily, uh, that domestic violence is going to spike. And sure enough, uh, several papers, including this one, find that calls to the police reporting domestic violence increased in early 2020. But what this latest paper finds is that the spike started before shutdowns took effect in mid-March, when people started traveling less, but they weren't really stuck at home. They could still see friends and go out. And they find that police incident reports for assault and homicide did not increase in the weeks after the shutdowns. And in fact, assaults seem to have fallen. So even if there were more calls, fewer actual assaults were getting reported. There's a lot of uh, interesting analysis in the paper about why this might be the case. Dara, what do you make of the finding here? I think that it's you know especially important to note the distinction between calls and incident reports in domestic violence cases, because like that can cut both ways. It is no surprise to weeds listeners. Like you can you can check off your your weeds bingo card for like all crime statistics are synthetic, but like in the case of domestic violence calls, there is on the one hand a, you know, large propensity to like treat any house call as a potential domestic violence call. There's a, you know, there is a tendency for those calls to be made for things that don't necessarily rise to the level of criminal disputes that are, that are interpersonal disputes um, outside of the kind of domestic violence context that are just like disputes among members of a family. And on the other hand, there is the kind of post facto chilling effect concern, right? That like a survivor of domestic violence might have the strength in the moment to call 911 and say, please send police officers to my house and may not have the you know desire and ability to kind of follow through and make sure that 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 their abuser is being like brought up on charges. So it can be a little bit hard to suss out. But like, to the extent that we believe that the first of those factors is bigger than the second one, which I think is pretty much consensus that like it is more likely that a call that disappears from the incident reporting is not a case of domestic violence than that it is like this is really significant because previous studies on this were solely based on the call metric. And that raises the concern that it becomes kind of a fear vortex, right, that the fear that there is going to be more domestic violence might lead neighbors, for example, to be more willing to call police in cases of interpersonal dispute. 
and that that will then show up in the stats as more domestic violence calls, which will then convince people that there is a spike of domestic violence afoot. So I think that there are many bigger things to say about the phenomenon that is being documented or rather kind of debunked here. But I think, you know, that seems to me to be the best way to understand what this paper is doing and how it's distinguished from some of the early reporting, which was not wrong, but which was measuring the wrong thing. I think um, often what people do when they're trying to figure out what happened to crime is that we look at the most obvious statistic, which is murder, which is because it's hard to get rid of a dead body. Like people will report it because you have to take it to a funeral home and like do all the things that legally obligated to do. And they don't find in this paper that intimate partner homicides went up during shutdown months, which, you know, it's possible, of course, those things could diverge, that you could have lower intimate partner homicides, but still have higher incidence of domestic violence. But that is a point in favor of this kind of thesis of of this finding. Um, And I will say, too, that one of the things that they add in the conclusion of the paper is that the fact that there was so much reporting and so much effort from states and localities to engage in both public relations work, but also in providing services and support services to people who were victims of domestic violence could have led to a decline in domestic violence and also could have led to an increase in calls about domestic violence because it increased the number of people who were like, this is a problem. I need to be on the lookout for it. So it's really hard to disentangle what's going on here and kind of just speaks to the difficulties of just disentangling crime statistics in general that Dara mentioned. Right. I mean, and it also goes to a much bigger problem. Like this was one of many things that at the beginning of the first lockdown, I as a reporter was like kind of aware of ambiently and in a weird position, right? Because you can't write, this thing is going to happen. You can write, people are afraid that this thing is going to happen. But like the question of whether that rises to the threshold of a story is going to like vary based on publication. And then it needs to be followed up. And what if something else happens and you're not paying attention to it anymore? And you don't ever circle back and say, actually, that thing that we were worried about did not happen. But then, of course, as Jerusalem is saying, like, if raising awareness about something might happen actually prevents it from happening, then you can't exactly say that that is, you know, energy well spent. It is still likely that the perception is going to persist, though, that like that did happen. So it raises a lot of really big questions for me about like, what do we do as journalists? And what do we do as kind of like a policy community when we're paying proactive attention to something? And then either it doesn't materialize or we don't have enough real-time information. Like this study, I, you know, Dylan mentioned this at the beginning, but it only goes through May 2020. And we've discussed on this podcast before that like the amount of interpersonal tension and political tension around the pandemic really did ramp up during the kind of subsequent lockdowns. So even now you could say that this is somewhat, pre, you know, premature data and we're a year and a half later. So at what point do we say this thing that we were worried about happening hasn't happened, we can officially stand down? I would say, too, that, like, I think that the initial intuition made a lot of sense to me that, like, people are at home. There's more interactions between people who are abused and potential abusers when you're, like, locked at home with people. But then also, like, you know, there's also a bunch of other cross pressures, right? Like, if you are locked at home, it means, and you don't live with your abuser, it means they, like, likely can't come get you in, like, vulnerable moments, like, when you are at your car or, like, work or whatever it is. Or if your abuser's at work, like, it means there's, like, less likely to be able to engage with you there. And also, of course, like, you know, people were being fired. So like no longer at work or their lives were changing. They had to move or move home. So like there's a bunch of different cross pressures here that's hard to disentangle. Like it could be that domestic violence went down because a bunch of people were fired, which is not good. It's like not a good policy outcome. So it's it's hard to suss out. 
Yeah, I feel like Herman Lopez would point out here that domestic violence probably went down because bars were shut down. Thank you I for mean, being our resident honestly, Herman. Maybe. Yeah, that's a yeah. good point. They actually. mentioned that in passing in the paper. As, yeah. as like in, in a one of many kind of way. But it does seem like if, you know, if, if I'm commissioning further research, that's kind of where I'm going to focus my energies. One other like wrinkle here that I, I wanted to mention is uh, there was there was another paper on domestic violence in the pandemic that was specifically looking at calls and trying to break them down between sort of calls inside the house and third party reports mm. like you hear your neighbors um, and that a significant amount of the increase seems to be driven by third party reports. And that like might square the circle a little bit. You know, if if domestic violence isn't up, but you have more people at home, more people listening, more people sort of alert and wanting to report, as as Dara was saying earlier, that might account for an increase in calls, even if sort of the underlying crimes don't seem to be increasing. I mean, yeah, but it also really lends urgency to the question of like, at what point do you need to actively try to change that perception? Because it's not like higher volume of 911 calls for things that don't rise to the level of criminal dispute is like a zero cost thing, right? So it really, it makes it a matter of more than academic interest if you have an actual effect in police resources because of this sector of people that are now really concerned that domestic violence is happening next door. It also sort of raises this question here too, like, right, because we do see the increase in calls, but not the increase in the actual police reports that, that get uh, recorded. And that could mean that there's not, that the things that are being called on are, as like Dara says, could be like not actually domestic violence. It could be just like someone yelling at their kid to like, please stop like banging the piano. And like someone misinterprets that through a muffled, you know, apartment building and, and, and reports that individual. Or it could be that the person was yelling in an abusive way towards their kid and police officers were not going to make that a domestic violence report because um, either, you know, they don't want to go inside and investigate because of COVID risk. They didn't want to go inside the um, apartments and they were scared about, you know, contagion or because, you know, maybe perhaps they're overworked because of the increased volume of calls in general. Um, and thus they're like not able to give as much time to each individual one. Um, it could be a bunch of these things happening at once that some of these things are frivolous, some things are not. I mean, there's tons of reporting and research on the fact that there are police departments and police officers that don't take it seriously when you have domestic violence calls and you get those in, especially if uh, if the abused person who, who is, uh, you know, a woman and she is saying that please don't press charges. So they're trying to listen to this person. And it's also hard to know, like, what the correct course of action there is, too, because often women are saying don't send this person to jail, not just because they don't they are, you know, in this moment of abuse, but because they're financially dependent on this individual. They need that person to go to job to their job. But they have children together and they can't afford their lodgings or their life without that. So it's I think the really difficult part about this paper is figuring out what the policy response is supposed to be here, especially when we have not a very good idea idea on whether there were more incidents happening or people are more aware of more incidents happening or people are calling about frivolous things or if police officers are doing their jobs or if their police officers would do their jobs outside of COVID because <laughs> they were scared about contagion. There's just so many factors here that I think are actually, um, you know, it's a paper that seems on face like pretty straightforward, but it's actually like very complicated. I will say just for those who aren't going to read the paper, uh, which I assume is most of you, that like when Jerusalem was talking earlier about the like intimate partner violence not increasing, the paper's authors point to that as their answer to the what if police just didn't want to file incident reports? Because, you know, as for exactly the reasons that Jerusalem was mentioning, it's less likely that that's going to be underreported. And in theory, it is likely that if you have if you have a phenomenon in which police are ignoring increasingly severe calls of distress, you would expect to see a rise in the 
the number of intimate partner homicides. So I'm less concerned than Jerusalem is that like what we're seeing is a lot of uh, false negatives in that data. But I think the the other reason that I'm less concerned about it is because like it's it's a less complicated policy question for me. It's or it's a less hard policy question because it's easy to say, oh, okay, like the real reason that there are all these police resources getting used on calls is that like this is something police should be solving. This is a legitimate dispute. It's just that police are like ignoring it because misogyny. It is if true harder to say this very well-intentioned thing that is trying to prevent a very real possible harm is in fact diverting a lot of police resources towards things that are not that. What do we do now? What do we do? Call Herman. <laughs> Once we're getting to calling Herman, I feel like that's time to wrap up. <laughs> yep. There's no phone a friend on the weeds. That's all for us today. Thanks so much to, to Vox's Jerusalem Demsis and ProPublica's Dara Lynn for joining the panel. The Weeds is produced and engineered by Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. Subscribe to our newsletter at vox.com slash weedsletter. We'll be back in your feeds this Friday with a conversation between Jerusalem and the Atlantic's Derek Thompson on the future of work. We'll see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.